I'd like to read these verses as we go to prayer from Psalm 62. My soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge, is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Father, we're thankful that you are a mighty fortress. You are a high tower. You are our refuge. You're the one that we can run to in the midst of the trials and tribulations of this life. We're so grateful that you have given yourself to us and drawn us to yourself. You've revealed yourself to us through your word. And Father, I thank you for putting in our hearts the <clears throat> desire to respond and the faith to believe. And I pray that that faith will grow and increase each and every day. Father, as we come to you this morning, we, we submit to you. We ask you to show us the truths that will help us individually and corporately to grow in you through your word. Father, we are weak, but you are strong. In us there dwells no good thing, but in you there is everything good and wonderful and perfect. And so we trust you to be present here to touch each life according to your will. To bless throughout this uh, complex today as the word is taught in the various classes and as the word is proclaimed in the service. That you will be honored and that you will be glorified. And we'll thank you for it. And we do pray, Father, for the Gideon Blitz. We pray for Bill and all the others that will take part in this outreach beginning tonight. Lord, grant safe travel and anoint the spread of, spreading of your word. I pray that it is, when it is, as it is placed, it'll be placed in the power of your Holy Spirit and that through this placing, many, many lives will be touched, that you will draw men and women through to, to salvation in Jesus Christ. Because in their, maybe their dire moment, they've picked up your word and you've spoken to them, and brought them to truth. We know this has happened literally hundreds of thousands of times. And we trust that you'll bless this effort according to your perfect will and by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn back to the 20th chapter of 2 Samuel, I will read beginning at verse 14. 2 Samuel 20, verse 14. Now he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, even to Beth Maacah, and all the Barites, and they were gathered together and also went after him. Now this is Sheba. Remember, he's the man who raised up a revolt against David. This is subsequent to Absalom's rebellion. Absalom's rebellion has only been over by, for possibly a few weeks. And, and this man has raised up another rebellion in Israel. And they came and besieged him. Now Joab is pursuing him with the army of Israel, a portion of it anyway. And he is pursuing this man north. And they came and besieged him in Abel-Beth-Meacah. And they cast up a mound against the city, and it, stood, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. Then a wise woman called from the city, Here, here, please tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. So he approached her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. 
Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she spoke, saying, Formerly they used to say, They will surely ask advice at Abel. And thus they ended the dispute. I am of those who are peace, peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it, far be it from me, that I should swallow up or destroy. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over, and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman wisely came to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they were dispersed from the city, each to his tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. One of the things we discover as we look at uh, various accounts in Scripture is that uh, there's not a lot of uh, inane humor and other kinds of nonsense. Pretty much it's uh, pretty straightforward. No punches are pulled, and... The truth is told. What we find here is very interesting. We have this man who has decided, obviously under the inspiration of the evil one, not of the Spirit of God, to raise up a rebellion against the anointed king of Israel, David. In order to gain the manpower to make this revolt successful, he is fleeing to the north to try to, what shall we say, recruit followers. The further north he fled, the more followers he thought he would have because those are the people who didn't, weren't able to participate in the welcoming back celebration for David after the collapse of the rebellion of Absalom. And so they were the ones that would be most burned, you might say, by the uh, attitude of the people of Judah who basically said, hey guys, you, you were just too late, that's just too bad, you know, rather than, you know, soft answer turning away wrath. And so as he's fleeing north, but what we discover is that uh, David quickly moves and knows that this could get out of hand. So he sends first Abishai, uh, well actually he, he first calls Amasa and, and tells him to raise an army, but he's not able to do it in time, so he, he, he gives Abishai the, the job. But uh, quickly Joab, brother of Abishai, takes over. And that's why you find Joab in the midst of this, even though he's not supposed to be the official commander of this force. Because David has demoted him for what he had done in the case of Absalom, disobeying uh, David's commands. And, and yet Abishai is his younger brother. And Abishai is used to functioning under Joab. And so as soon as they get out of David's sight, it seems Joab assumes the responsibility again. And so what Joab and the army of Israel is doing, the place of the crossing of the Jordan was down here, probably near Jericho. And the place of the killing of Amasa that we read about last time was up here at Gibeon, which is right about there. And so it's from Gibeon north that we're, we read about here, this pursuit to the north. Now it's all the way up to here. Here's Dan, and right across the valley from Dan, right about there, was Abel Beth Maaka, a small town but a fortified town, had walls around it, and therefore could be protected from attack. And, and the reason I mean, the reasons any towns had walls, of course, was to defend them from attack. But up here in the north, it was particularly important because they're pressing towards the fringes of the border of Israel. 
And, and almost always the towns out on the border uh, of a country needed to be fortified because they were the first line of defense against invaders. And so even though they were small, they, they were fortified. And so right up there. So the uh, pursuit had begun here and probably followed the uh, ridge route at least much of the way and then proceeded up probably through the valley here uh, up to Abel Beth Meaka. And Sheba and his followers, we don't know how many there were, probably a few hundred at the most, uh, had fled north to, to try to rally troops, but they were being pursued by Joab, and so that's what we discover here. Joab finds that Sheba has, has barred himself in the city. Now, in the tradition of the Near East, if someone comes to you as a guest, it's up to you to defend that person. And so the walls of the city are barred against Joab's force. And so, as we read, uh, Joab begins to throw up a, a, a ramp, a rampart against the walls in order to get high enough so they can knock down the upper part of the wall and get into the city. And I mentioned to you last time that, and we can see this just by looking at the ancient walls. Almost all the ancient walls were built in a, in a kind of trapezoidal shape, with the base being wider than the top. And so the higher up you can get on the wall, the chances of breaking through the wall are better than trying to break through the base of the wall. What we find is before Joab is able to get real far in this siege, a woman comes and calls to Joab over the wall. And what is interesting about this is it teaches us the reality of the significant roles that women often played in Israelite history. I mean, we already know about Deborah and, and others, but here we find another woman being mentioned, a wise woman, we're told, who raises a flag of truce. Now, if you can just picture this whole thing. Uh, the army of, of Israel is around the city of uh, Abel, and uh, they toss dirt up against part of, uh, a part of the rampart where they're, tr they're trying to get high enough to assault the city. And, and then they see this flag being waved over the top of the city. And a woman calls over the ramparts and says, is Joab out there? You know, white flag, of course, meaning let's not have any fighting now, let's talk, let's parley. And she calls out for Joab, and, and Joab is brought to the scene. Now, this woman could not have done this if she didn't have the support of the elders of the city. So obviously she was an important person in this city of Abel. Joab wisely agrees to meet with her. Uh, you know, whatever we think about Joab, and we don't have a lot of good thoughts about him because of the things that he has done, assassinations and all this kind of thing, but we do discover that he wasn't willing to sacrifice any men he didn't have to sacrifice. And if there was another way to take this city without bloodshed, he was willing to go that route. And so, you, you know, you read, are you Joab? And he says, yes, I am. And he says, I'm speaking. And he says, I'm listening and, and, and so on. So they have this parley with Joab probably down on the ground and the woman up on the wall looking over the rampart. Now, if we have these childhood visions of ancient walls, we probably think they were kind of having to shout like this, but you know, the walls weren't all that high. You know, mo most of these walls were not more than 15 feet, maybe 20 feet high, so it's really all not that far, you know, to, to be having this conversation back and forth. And they begin their negotiations. The woman points out, first of all, she kind of lays the groundwork and she says, uh, it's known in this area 
that if you have any problem, you go to the leaders of Abel Beth Meaka and the dispute is settled. And so obviously we're reasonable people, we're wise people. Uh, we're not just a bunch of rebels. And on top of that, she says, we're loyal citizens of Israel, implying, of course, she acknowledged David as king. And so she was making it clear to Joab that they were not rebels. Why is he doing this? And it seems that she might also be of implying something. And let me uh, say that it isn't stated specifically, but let me read a passage to you in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20, beginning at verse 10. We read these words. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And it shall come about, if it agrees to make peace with you and opens up to you, then it shall be that all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword, only the women, the children, the animals, and all that is in the city, all its spoil you shall take as booty for yourselves. And you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. So the implication here is the first thing you do if you're going to attack a city is offer terms of peace. Don't just assume that they're going to fight and, and you're going to have a war here or a siege, but, but offer terms. And then if the city refuses the terms, then besiege the city. Well, Joab has simply thrown up a siege, established a siege, and begun to throw up dirt against the wall to assault it without offering any terms or any parley. So it seems that she's kind of jabbing him here and saying, you know, you haven't really followed the true biblical method here of, of dealing with a city that you want to uh, capture. Furthermore, we discover in this passage that she bolsters her position by challenging jo Joab's basic motives. She says, would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Would you destroy a city which is a loyal part of Israel? So she's moving the negotiations from the level of a single individual or a small group of rebels She's moving the negotiation to the level of damaging the inheritance of the Lord. <laughs> the implication is, if you carry on with this, you're fighting against God himself. Well, Joab, of course, responds to that, and he makes it very clear that he's not there to destroy the city. I don't want to destroy the city, he says, in effect, to this woman. He says, I'm here for only one reason. I'm here because inside your walls you have a rebel, a man who has raised up his hand against the God-chosen king of Israel, whom you claim to be loyal to. Turn him over to me, and the siege will be over, and there will be peace. Well, it seems that the two agreed over this. She saw the reasonableness in this, and he saw the reasonableness in, in her claims. And as you read this, one of the things you discover is you have no idea who this woman is. Her name is never mentioned. And to me, that, that seems to be illustrated to us in um, Ecclesiastes. Let me uh, turn to Ecclesiastes, the ninth chapter. If you want to follow along Ecclesiastes, and if you don't remember, it uh, comes right after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, reading at verse 13. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, 
And a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom, yet no one remembered that poor wise man. He has wisdom saved the city, but nobody remembered him. This woman's wisdom will save the city, yet in ways no one remembers her. At least she is mentioned in this passage, but her name is never mentioned. And that happens, of course, many times in scriptures, but, Scripture, but we know who does remember. And that's what's important. And I think one of the truths that comes out of that is, if we are used by God to do something significant, we don't have to receive worldly credit. We don't have to be exalted in this world. We, we don't have to have our name established on the building or printed in the bulletin or in neon lights or something. Because often that results in the only praise we're really going to get. Because often it results in pride. Uh, you have all known this as I have. How, how many seemingly great men of God have catapulted to destruction once they became very, very famous and, and began to think that everything about what they were doing had to have their name on it, you know. We always have to remember that it's the name of the Lord we're exalting. John the Baptist said, He must increase and I must decrease. And I think the closer we walk with the Lord, the more we know that that is the truth that we should live by. True to this passage, this woman remains nameless. Well, if this plan is carried out, as Joab and this woman have negotiated it, they have come to the place to realize that the whole thing will be resolved with the loss of one life only. Seeing the wisdom of Joab's request, the woman promises to have Sheba's head thrown over the wall. Now, that's not a pretty picture, and you know most of us aren't real thrilled about that uh, part of it. We're told that in verse 22 that the woman then wisely went to the elders of the people and told, this, these are the negotiations, and, and they agreed that this is the wise thing. She probably said, yeah, sure, uh, we're, we're supposed to protect guests that come to us, but if it's going to destroy our city, and if he's a rebel against our king, which means he's a rebel against our God, is he someone we want to protect? And they all obviously agreed that, no, we don't want to protect him. Now, the question becomes this. He probably was not alone in the city. He probably came into the city with several followers, maybe a several dozen, maybe a several hundred. And, and they're all in the city too. There is no implication that any of them raised a hand to protect their leader. Is it because they saw the wisdom of it all too? Is it because they all realized that Sheba was a jerk and we didn't need to follow him anyway? We, we don't know. All we know is that his head was thrown over the wall. Leroy. Uh, do we see a parallel, a par a parallel with uh, G.W. and uh, Bush? He's given terms. There will be no war if the terms are met. The terms haven't been met. But if his head comes over the wall... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that has been said. 
In fact, I, I was listening to a news blip <laughs> last night where they were saying there was a whole lot of money was apparently being used over there to see if somebody wouldn't just, in effect, do that. Larry? Yeah, um, but why do you think they threw the head over the wall instead of just turning them over like Joab requested? Was that to prove their loyalty or did it, was it part of the custom of you're protecting this person so if you're going to, he needs to be dealt with, the city deals with him or why, why didn't they just turn him over? I think both of those points that you make are, are legitimate ones. They have taken him in. They have given him shelter. Therefore, it is their responsibility to deal with the issue, to root out the... You know, when, they, when he first came in, they probably didn't understand that he was actually had raised a standard against the king of Israel. I mean, we don't know what he said or what he told them that convinced them to take him in and to defend him. But I think, yeah, I think they felt a responsibility to be the ones to uh, execute judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, that's good. I, I think that's probably the best explanation as to why they did that. And what it did, of course, was save a lot of trouble. Because now Joab doesn't have to try to escort this guy. Of course, if you fall in the hands of Joab... <laughs> Right, sure. It, it would be a demonstration of their loyalty if they would be willing to do that. There's no doubt about that. Good points. In fulfillment of his promise, Joab called off the siege, marched back to Jerusalem in triumph, and what you discover is returned to the position of commander of the army of Israel. Now, interesting. There are other things that we could draw out of this, of course. You know, the, the idea that by, through the death of one man, the whole city is saved. And, of course, we see in this the parallel to, to Jesus and the statement that was made by the high priest that in the death of one man, the whole nation will be saved. And we can see that parallel, not that Sheba in any way was a type of Christ. It was not. But Matthew Henry uses this in a very interesting way. He, he uses this account of the siege to draw a parallel, kind of a parabolic idea here, uh, he says, in effect, that God will besiege the citadel of our hearts. God will lay siege to our hearts, but he will not assault our hearts. But he will keep up the pressure of the siege and through his word until we throw the traitor out. Sin. The sin that is within us. When we cast the sin out by the power of God, of course, we can't rid ourselves of our sin, but, but he can, uh, that, that then, you know, the city becomes loyal, the, our heart becomes loyal to him. It's, it's kind of an interesting, you know, we, we might call it, uh, not necessarily in the passage, but you, you could uh, maybe make that parallel from the passage. Scripture tells us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and we know that that is the truth of the Word of God. And one of the big issues that we face as evangelicals is uh, what, what some churches would call too easy way of, of being freed from your sin. By simply calling upon the name of the Lord and He rescues us, He saves us, He cleanses us, and we don't have to go through all of this penance and all of the affliction and sleeping on a bed of nails and the other kind of things that some, some groups of Christianity like to emphasize. 
you have to do something to purge away your sin. But that isn't what the scripture says. God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But it can be very discouraging. I mean, you and I all know that we are subjected to failure. As I read scripture, there isn't any way that any of us, by the time we reach the moment of our death, has reached the point of perfection where we can just simply step into glory without having had the necessity of the cleansing of the Spirit of God of our hearts. But there are some groups who believe that you can't even know, even on your deathbed, if you're going to make it. Because maybe you just haven't done everything right yet. You know, maybe you haven't grieved enough or you haven't done enough penance or something else so that you don't know if you're going to make it. But that just isn't what I see here in God's Word. We are the children of God. And as God's children, we will be in His presence without question, without doubt. We are assured of that truth. The last part of the 20th chapter might consider to be a little be considered to be a little bit mundane, maybe kind of like almost like bookkeeping. But let's read the passage. Uh, last uh, four verses. Now Joab was over the whole army of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was over the Carathites and the Pelathites, and Adoram was over the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilad was the recorder, and Sheba was the scribe, and Zadok and Abiathar were the priest, and Ira the Jerite was also a priest to David, and that, that word there should be advisor, not priest. And we talked about that before when we dealt with the sons of David. The sons of David were called the Cohen of, of David, but Cohen, which is normally translated priest, can also mean advisor, and that's certainly what this was here because we already know who the priests are. This passage is an updating. You may remember, or may not, that when we were going through the eighth chapter of 2 Samuel, there was, this fir there was a first list of, of these, what should we call it, David's cabinet? <laughs> Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, you know, that kind of idea. And, and that's who these, these people were. And so we're, it's being updated here. It's been many, many years since that first list, and there's been a little bit of turnover, not a whole lot. In spite of all the trouble that, De uh, that Joab had gotten himself into, you discover he's still the top commander of David's army. Joab could drive David to wrath one moment, to tears the next moment, and yet David could not find anybody else to lead uh, the armies of Israel as brilliantly as Joab led that army. And we also find this man, Benaiah. He remains as the commander of David's bodyguard, the Carathites and the Pelathites. Extremely loyal, extremely capable, so much so that when David dies and Solomon becomes king over Israel, Benaiah becomes the commander of the armies of Israel and Joab is executed by Solomon. In the earlier list of administrators, there was no national minister over forced labor or corvée. The term forced labor usually is used for people like prisoners of war or aliens in the land who are used to, to carry out works of labor as captors, uh, as captives uh, within the land. Corvée, C-O-R-V-E-E, -E, with an accent over the first E there, it's a, obviously a French word, is, was practiced in many countries. And, and that's where you take the citizens of your own country and you say, 
Instead of you paying taxes, I want so many days of labor for you on the, on the public works. For example, the Incas in their empire required every village to supply so much labor to keep the roads up that went through their, their area. So, you know, so many weeks out of the year, the local peasants had to go out there and, and rebuild, clean up the roads, refurbish the roads in their area, and that was their tax. You know, I, some of us wouldn't mind giving a week, maybe, of working for the government in, in lieu of income tax. Well, of course, in, in lieu of income tax, it would probably be several months that we'd have to put in, but... I've forgotten what the day is now that we finally are earning money for ourselves in the year. What is it? Somewhere in April, like April 15th, maybe? <laughs> Adoram, the man mentioned here, Adoram is a form of Adoniram, which is a, a really beautiful name. It means the Lord is exalted. He was given the distasteful task of heading up this particular Department of Forced Labor, I guess. Department of Labor, <laughs> I guess you could call it here. And what we find from Scripture, though, is that the primary people used were the Canaanites still living in the land. Let me read to you from uh, 1 Kings chapter 9 at verse 20. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 20. As for all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not the sons of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the sons of Israel were unable to destroy utterly, from them Solomon levied forced laborers even to this day. But Solomon did not make slaves of the sons of Israel, for they were men of war, his servants, his princes, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. So it seems that the Canaanites were used in this department under this man, Adoram, primarily. Thousands of them would be used. In another passage we read, thousands were used to go up and cut trees and to bring the building supplies for the construction of Solomon's great palace and then later of the temple to the Lord. However, there is an indication here that maybe some corvée had happened in Israel. And this indication comes a little later, in the days of Rehoboam. Now, we're a little ahead of our story here, but after Solomon, Solomon will be succeeded by his son Rehoboam. Rehoboam, to put it mildly, was a jerk. And as a result, there will be a revolt against Rehoboam. And Rehoboam will send Adoram to see if he can quell the revolt. Adoram goes to the northern ten northern tribes up here, which have revolted against Rehoboam down in Jerusalem. And they stone him to death. Now, it could be they stoned him simply because he represented Rehoboam, but it could be they stoned him because they hated him, because he represented forced labor. And, and maybe that uh, they'd actually done some of that, because you remember Rehoboam said, well, if my father whipped you with... I've forgotten, but anyway, I'll whip you with whips as thick as my thigh or something like that. Well, we'll get there. <laughs> but scorpions, yeah, there we go. I'll whip you with uh, scorpions. Jehoshaphat, who's mentioned here, is, of course, that's a fairly common name, and he's not the king who comes much later in time. But he is the recorder, or the rememberer. He's in the first list in 2 Samuel chapter 8. His position is to be in charge of the government documents and annals. So he's sort of the secretary of state in some ways. And Sheva replaced Saraiah as the chief 
scribe or lawyer, if you will. He's, he's the man who would draft the laws, draft the treaties, draft the proclamations, probably be David's speechwriter kind of uh, guy. The priests remained the same. But we have this guy, Ira. Ira the Jerite replaces the king's sons, partly because most of the king's sons are dead. And, and he becomes the chief advisor to the king. Now, it's kind of humorous to me, and maybe you won't find it funny, but Ira comes from the root word. Now remember, he is the, he is the king's advisor. Ira comes from the root word male donkey. So does that mean the king was advised by a jackass? <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, let me just say something about the last uh, four chapters here. We won't have time to really get into them today. But the last four chapters, sometimes these last four chapters of 2 Samuel are looked upon as, a, as an appendix to the book, as a kind of a collection of non-chronological events kind of thrown together at the end. But, you know, I think what we find here is also, as you look at it as a whole, a bit of a spiritual Oreo here. You know, the Oreo cookie. Because what you find in the middle of these four chapters is one of the most beautiful psalms in Scripture. In the 22nd chapter and the first half of the 23rd chapter, you find this, I mean, if you ever need a psalm to read, when you're feeling down and you're feeling buffeted, read that psalm because it tells us how the Lord our God is with us and how He walks with us through all the hardships of our lives and how He, he lifts us up and helps us. Anyway, that's the cream. And on the two sides, you have accounts in chapter 21 and chapter 24 of plague, of famine, of war. And, and so what you find is between the trials and tribulations of life, there is the cream, the heart, the core of what God does for us. And, and one of the things I'm going to emphasize next week and, and will come out in, in these passages is that God walks with us through every single moment of our lives. He never abandons us. He helps us no matter how difficult the situation may be. Even if we have failed like David failed, God was still with him because in the last chapter we find David going off and doing some dumb thing again. And, and yet in it all, he finds God to be there. God doesn't abandon him. God helps him. God walk. Sure, God will chastise him. But the scripture says, he, you know, the son that God loves, he chastises the son or the daughter. And, and so in this time in which we're living, in which we're... It's very possibly very nervous about the world right now. Not only because our economy is kind of bumping along down on the bottom, but because we're facing very uncertain situations overseas. Things are not going, quote, our way, whatever that is. That God's in charge. He's not gone off to Alpha Centauri and just said, well, you guys do, do the best you can. I'm going somewhere else where people aren't so rebellious, you know. No, he's here and he's walking with us as we so often hear, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so that's really what comes out of these passages at the end of the book of 2 Samuel. So we'll, we'll look at that in, uh, in some detail beginning next week.